Chapter Four of Reed Anthony Cowman, an autobiography by Andy Adams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A fatal trip. Before leaving Fort Sumner, an agreement had been entered into between my employers and the contractors for a third herd. The delivery was set for the first week in September, and twenty-five hundred beeves were agreed upon. With a liberal leeway above and below that number, in case of accident en route. Accordingly, on our return to Loving's Ranch, active preparations were begun for the next drive. Extra horses were purchased, several new guns of the most modern make were secured, and the gathering of cattle in Loving's brand began at once, continuing for six weeks. We combed the hills and valleys along the main brazos. And then started west up the Clear Fork, carrying the beeves with us while gathering. The range was in prime condition. The cattle were fat and indolent, and with the exception of Indian rumors, there was not a cloud in the sky. Our last camp was made a few miles above Fort Griffin. Military protection was not expected, yet our proximity to that post was considered a security from Indian interference. As at times, not over half the outfit were with the herd. We had nearly completed our numbers when one morning early in July, the Redskins struck our camp with the violence of a cyclone. The attack occurred as usual about half an hour before dawn, and to add to the difficulty of the situation, the cattle stampeded with the first shot fired. I was on last guard at the time and conscious. That it was an Indian attack, I unslung a new Sharps rifle and tore away in the lead of the herd. With the rumbling of over two thousand running cattle in my ears, hearing was out of the question. While my sense of sight was rendered useless by the darkness of the morning hour, yet I had some very distinct visions, not from the herd of frenzied beeves thundering at my heels, but every shade and shadow in the darkness looked like a pursuing Comanche. Once I leveled my rifle at a shadow, but hesitated when a flash from a six-shooter revealed the object to be one of our own men. I knew there were four of us with the herd when it stampeded, but if the rest were as badly bewildered as I was, it was dangerous even approaching them. But I had a king's horse under me and trusted my life to him, and he led the run until breaking dawn revealed our identity to each other. The presence of two other men with a running herd was then discovered. We were fully five miles from camp, and giving our attention to the running cattle, we soon turned the lead. The main body of the herd was strung back for a mile, but we fell on the leaders right and left, and soon had them headed back for camp. In the meantime, and with the breaking of day, our trail had been taken up by both drovers and a half a dozen men. Who overtook us shortly after sunup? A count was made, and we had every hoof. A determined fight had occurred over the remuda and commissary, and three of the Indians' ponies had been killed, while some thirty arrows had found lodgment in our wagon. There were no casualties in the cow outfit, and if any occurred among the redskins, the wounded or killed were carried away by their comrades before daybreak. All agreed. That there were fully one hundred warriors in the attacking party, and as we slowly drifted the cattle back to camp, 
Doubt was expressed by the drovers whether it was advisable to drive the herd to its destination in midsummer with the Comanches out on their old hunting grounds. A report of the attack was sent into Griffin that morning, and a company of cavalry took up the Indian trail, following it until evening, and returned to the post during the night. Approaching a government station was generally looked upon as an audacious act of the Redskins, but the contempt of the Comanche and his ally for citizen and soldier alike was well known on the Texas frontier and excited little comment. Several years later, in broad daylight, they raided the town of Weatherford, untied every horse from the hitching racks, and defiantly rode away with their spoil. But the prevailing spirit in our camp was not the kind to yield to an inferior race, and true to their obligation to the contractors, they pushed forward preparations to start the herd. Within a week our numbers were completed, two extra men were secured, and on the morning of July 14, 1867, we trailed out up the Clear Fork with a few over 2,600 big beeves. It was the same old route to the southwest. There was a decided lack of enthusiasm over the start, yet never a word of discouragement escaped the lips of men or employers. I have never been a superstitious man, had never had a premonition of impending danger, always felt rather an enthusiasm in my undertakings. Yet that morning, when the flag over Fort Griffin faded from our view, I believe there was not a man in the outfit but realized that our journey would be disputed by Indians. Nor had we long to wait. Near the juncture of Elm Creek with the main clear fork, we were again attacked at the usual hour in the morning. The camp was the best available, and yet not a good one for defense, as the ground was broken by shallow draws and dry washes. There were about 100 yards of clear space on three sides of the camp, while on the exposed side, and 30 yards distant, was a slight depression of several feet. Fortunately, we had a moment's warning by several horses snorting and pawing the ground, which caused Goodnight to quietly awake the men sleeping near him, who in turn were arousing the others, when a flight of arrows buried themselves in the ground around us, and the war-whoop of the Comanche sounded. Ever cautious, we had studied the situation on encamping, and had tied our horses, cavalry fashion, to a heavy rope stretched from the protected side of the wagon to a high stake driven for the purpose. With the attack, the majority of the men flung themselves into their saddles and started to the rescue of the remuda, while three others and myself, detailed in anticipation, ran for the ravine and dropped into it about forty yards above the wagon. We could easily hear the exultations of the redskins just below us in the shallow gorge and an enfilade fire was poured into them at short range. Two guns were cutting the grass from underneath the wagon, and knowing the Indians had crept up to the depression on foot, we began a rapid fire from our carbines and six-shooters, which created the impression of a dozen rifles on their flank, and they took to their heels in a headlong rout. Once the firing ceased, we hailed our men under the wagon and returned to it, Three men were with the commissary, one of whom was a mere boy, who was wounded in the head from an arrow 
during the first moment of the attack, and was then raving piteously from his sufferings. The darky cook, who was one of the defenders of the wagon, was consoling the boy. So, with a parting word of encouragement, we swung into our saddles and rode in the direction of the dim firing up the creek. The cattle were out of hearing, but the random shooting directed our course, and halting several times, we were finally piloted to the scene of activity. Our hail was met by a shout of welcome, and the next moment we dashed in among our own and reported the repulse of the Indians from the wagon. The remuda was dashing about, hither and yon. A mob of howling savages were circling about, barely within gunshot, while our men rode cautiously, checking and turning the frenzied saddle-horses, and never missing a chance of judiciously throwing a little lead. There was no sign of daybreak, and, fearful for the safety of our commissary, we threw a cordon around the remuda and started for camp. Although there must have been over one hundred Indians in the general attack, we were still masters of the situation. Though they followed us until the wagon was reached and the horses secured in a rope corral. A number of us again sought the protection of the ravine, and scattering above and below, we got in some telling shots at short range, when the redskins gave up the struggle and decamped. As they bore off westward on the main clear fork, their hilarious shoutings could be distinctly heard for miles on the stillness of the morning air. An inventory of the camp was taken at dawn. The wounded lad received the first attention. The arrowhead had buried itself below and behind the ear, but nippers were applied and the steel point was extracted. The cook washed the wound thoroughly and applied a poultice of meal, which afforded almost instant relief. While the horses were being saddled to follow the cattle, I cast my eye over the camp and counted over two hundred arrows within a radius of fifty yards. Two had found lodgment in the bearskin on which I slept. Dozens were embedded in the running gear and box of the wagon, while the stationary flashes from the muzzle of the cook's Creedmoor had concentrated an unusual number of arrows in and around his citadel. The darky had exercised caution and corded the six ox yokes against the front wheel of the wagon in such a manner as to form a barrier, using the spaces between the spokes as portholes. As he never varied his position under the wagon, the Indians had aimed at his flash, and during the rather brief fight, twenty arrows had buried themselves in that barricade of ox yokes. The trail of the beeves was taken at dawn. This made the fifth stampede of the herd since we started, a very unfortunate thing, for stampeding easily becomes a mania with range cattle. The steers had left the bed ground in an easterly direction, but finding that they were not pursued, the men had gradually turned them to the right, and at daybreak the herd was near Elm Creek, where it was checked. We rode the circle in a free gallop, the prairie being cut into dust, and the trail was as easy to follow as a highway. As the herd happened to land on our course, after the usual count, the commissary was sent for, and it and the remuda were brought up. With the exception of wearing hobbles, the oxen were always given their freedom at night. This morning, one of them was found in a dying condition, 
from an arrow in his stomach. A humane shot relieved the poor beast, and his mate trailed up to the herd tied behind the wagon with a rope. There were several odd oxen among the cattle, and the vacancy was easily filled. If I am lacking in compassion for my red brother, the lack has been heightened by his fiendish atrocities to dumb animals. I have been witness to the ruin of several wagon trains captured by Indians, have seen their ashes and irons, and even charred human remains, and was scarce moved to pity because of the completeness of the hellish work. Death is merciful and humane when compared to the hamstringing of oxen, gouging out their eyes, severing their ears, cutting deep slashes from shoulder to hip, and leaving the innocent victim to a lingering death. And when dumb animals are thus mutilated in every conceivable form of torment, as if for the amusement of the imps of the evil one, my compassion for poor Lowe ceases. It was impossible to send the wounded boy back to the settlements, so a comfortable bunk was made for him in the wagon. Late in the evening, we resumed our journey, expecting to drive all night, as it was good starlight. Fair progress was made, but toward the morning a rainstorm struck us, and the cattle again stampeded. In all my outdoor experience, I never saw such pitchy darkness as accompanied that storm. Although galloping across a prairie in a blustering rainfall, it required no strain of the imagination to see hills and mountains and forests on every hand. Fourteen men were with the herd, yet it was impossible to work in unison, and when day broke we had less than half the cattle. The lead had been maintained, but in drifting at random with the storm, several contingents of beeves had cut off from the main body, supposedly from the rear. When the sun rose, men were dispatched in pairs and trios. The trail of the missing steers was picked up, and by ten o'clock every hoof was in hand or accounted for. I came in with the last contingent, and found the camp in an uproar over the supposed desertion of one of the hands. Yankee Bill, a sixteen-year-old boy, and another man were left in charge of the herd when the rest of us struck out to hunt the missing cattle. An hour after sunrise, the boy was seen to ride deliberately away from his charge, without cause or excuse, and had not returned. Desertion was the general supposition. Had he not been mounted on one of the firm's horses, the offense might have been overlooked. But the delivery of the herd depended on the saddle stock, and two men were sent on his trail. The rain had freshened the ground, and after trailing the horse for fifteen miles, the boy was overtaken while following cattle tracks towards a herd. He had simply fallen asleep in the saddle, and the horse had wandered away. Yankee Bill had made the trip to Sumner with us the fall before, and stood well with his employers, so the incident was forgiven and forgotten. From Elm Creek to the beginning of the dry drive was one continual struggle with stampeding cattle or warding off Indians. In spite of careful handling, the herd became spoiled and would run from the howl of a wolf or the snort of a horse. The dark hour before dawn was usually the crucial period, and until the arid belt was reached, all hands were aroused at two o'clock in the morning. 
The start was timed so as to reach the dry drive during the full of the moon, and although it was a test of endurance for man and beast, there was relief in the desert waste from the lurking savage which recompensed for its severity. Three sleepless nights were born without a murmur, and on our reaching Horsehead Crossing and watering the cattle, they were turned back on the mesa and freed for the time being. The presence of Indian sign around the ford was the reason for turning loose, but at the roundup the next morning, the experiment proved a costly one, as 363 beeves were missing. The cattle were nervous and feverish through suffering from thirst, and had they been bedded closely, stampeding would have resulted, the foreman choosing the least of two alternatives in scattering the herd. That night we slept the sleep of exhausted men, and the next morning even awaited the sun on the cattle before throwing them together, giving the Indian thieves full ten hours the start. The stealing of cattle by the Comanches was something unusual, and there was just reason for believing that the present theft was instigated by renegade Mexicans, allies in the War of 36. Three distinct trails left the range around the crossing, all heading south, each accompanied by fully fifty horsemen. One contingent crossed the Pecos at an Indian trail about twenty-five miles below Horsehead, another still below, while the third continued on down the left bank of the river. Yankee Bill and Mocho Wilson, a one-armed man, followed the latter trail, sighting them late in the evening, but keeping well in the open. When the Comanches had satisfied themselves that but two men were following them, small bands of warriors dropped out under cover of the broken country and attempted to gain the rear of our men. Wilson was an old plainsman, and once he saw the hopelessness of recovering the cattle, he and Yankee Bill began a cautious retreat. During the night, and when opposite the ford where the first contingent of beeves crossed, they were waylaid, while returning, by the wily redskins. The nickering of a pony warned them of the presence of the enemy, and circling wide, they avoided an ambush, though pursued by the stealthy Comanches. Wilson was mounted on a good horse, while Yankee Bill rode a mule, and so closely were they pursued that on reaching the first broken ground, Bill turned into a coulee, while Mocho bore off on an angle, firing his six-shooter to attract the enemy after him. Yankee Bill told us afterward how he held the muzzle of his mule for an hour on dismounting to keep the rascal from bawling after the departing horse. Wilson reached camp after midnight and reported the hopelessness of the situation. But morning came, and with it, no Yankee Bill in camp. Half a dozen of us started in search of him under the leadership of the one-armed plainsman, and an hour afterward, Bill was met riding leisurely up the river. When rebuked by his comrade for not coming in under cover of darkness, he retorted, "'Hell, man, I wasn't going to run my mule to death just because there were a few Comanches in the country.' In trailing the missing cattle the day previous, I had accompanied Mr. Loving to the second Indian crossing. The country opposite the ford was broken and brushy. The trail was five or six hours old, and fearing an ambush, the drover refused to follow them farther. 
With the return of Yankee Bill safe and sound to camp, all hope of recovering the beeves was abandoned, and we crossed the Pecos and turned up that river. An effort was now made to quiet the herd and bring it back to a normal condition in order to fit it for delivery. With Indian raids, frenzy and stampeding, and an unavoidable dry drive, the cattle had gaunted like rails. But with an abundance of water, and by merely grazing the remainder of the distance, it was believed that the beeves would recover their old form and be ready for inspection at the end of the month of August. Indian sign was still plentiful, but in smaller bands, and with an unceasing vigilance, we wormed our way up the Pecos Valley. When within a day's ride of the post, Mr. Loving took Wilson with him and started in the Fort Sumner. The heat of August on the herd had made recovery slow, but if a two-weeks postponement could be agreed on, it was believed the beeves would qualify. The circumstances were unavoidable. The government had been lenient before, so hopeful of accomplishing his mission, the senior member of the firm set out on his way. The two men left camp at daybreak, cautioned by good night to cross the river by a well-known trail, keeping in the open, even though it was farther, as a matter of safety. They were well mounted for the trip, and no further concern was given to their welfare until the second morning, when Loving's horse came into camp, whinnying for his mates. There were bloodstains on the saddle, and the story of a man who was cautious for others and careless of himself was easily understood. Conjecture was rife. The presence of the horse admitted of several interpretations. An Indian ambush was the most probable, and a number of men were detailed to ferret out the mystery. We were then seventy miles below Sumner, and with orders to return to the herd at night, six of us immediately started. The searching party was divided into squads, one on either side of the Pecos River, but no results were obtained from the first day's hunt. The herd had moved up fifteen miles during the day, and the next morning the search was resumed, the work beginning where it had ceased the evening before. Late that afternoon, and from the east bank, as Goodnight and I were scanning the opposite side of the river, a lone man, almost naked, emerged from a cave across the channel and above us. Had it not been for his missing arm, it is doubtful if we should have recognized him, for he seemed demented. We rode opposite and hailed, when he skulked back into his refuge. But we were satisfied that it was Wilson. The other searchers were signaled to, and finding an entrance into the river, we swam it and rode up to the cave. A shout of welcome greeted us, and the next instant Wilson staggered out of the cavern, his eyes filled with tears. He was in horrible physical condition and bewildered. We were an hour getting his story. They had been ambushed by Indians and ran for the breaks of the river, but were compelled to abandon their horses, one of which was captured, the other escaping. Loving was wounded twice, in the wrist and the side, but from the cover gained, they had stood off the savages until darkness fell. During the night, Loving, unable to walk, believed that he was going to die, and begged Wilson to make his escape, and, if possible, return to the herd. 
After making his employer as comfortable as possible, Wilson buried his own rifle, pistols, and knife, and started on his return to the herd. Being one-armed, he had discarded his boots and nearly all his clothing to assist him in swimming the river, which he had done any number of times, traveling by night and hiding during the day. When found in the cave, his feet were badly swollen, compelling him to travel in the riverbed to protect them from sandburrs and thorns. He was taken up behind one of the boys on a horse, and we returned to camp. Wilson firmly believed that Loving was dead, and described the scene of the fight so clearly that anyone familiar with the river would have no difficulty in locating the exact spot. But the next morning, as we were nearing the place, we met an ambulance in the road, the driver of which reported that Loving had been brought into Sumner by a freight outfit. On receipt of this information, Goodnight hurried on to the post, while the rest of us looked over the scene, recovered the buried guns of Wilson, and returned to the herd. Subsequently, we learned that the next morning after Wilson left, Loving had crawled to the river for a drink, and looking upstream, he saw someone a mile or more distant watering a team. By firing his pistol, he attracted attention to himself, and so was rescued, the Indians having decamped during the night. To his partner, Mr. Loving corroborated Wilson's story and rejoiced to know that his comrade had also escaped. Everything that medical science could do was done by the post-surgeons for the veteran cowman, but after lingering twenty-one days, he died. Wilson and the wounded boy both recovered. The cattle were delivered in two installments, and early in October we started homeward, carrying the embalmed remains of the pioneer drover in a light conveyance. The trip was uneventful. The traveling was done principally by night, and on the arrival at Loving's frontier home, 600 miles from Fort Sumner, his remains were laid at rest with Masonic honors. Over 30 years afterward, a claim was made against the government for the cattle lost at Horsehead Crossing. Wilson and I were witnesses before the commissioner sent to take evidence in the case. The hearing was held at a federal court, and after it was over, Wilson, while drinking, accused me of suspecting him of deserting his employer. The suspicion I had, in fact, entertained at the time we discovered him at the cave. I had never breathed it to a living man. Yet it was the truth, slumbering for a generation before finding expression. End of chapter 4